0: Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. For my yoga teacher friends who are interested in working with the pregnant population, Prenatal Yoga Center offers an 85-hour Yoga Alliance certified program based on our three-pronged theory of prenatal yoga, asana, education, and community. Once a year, we hold our three-month immersion program in New York City. For those who cannot attend this training, Caprice and I are now traveling to different locations holding our training at hosting studios where we will spend six days working together, exploring and learning about prenatal yoga. This training consists of more than 50 hours working together. We also created a whole membership website with more than 20 videos corresponding directly to the manual you will receive. For more information, check out our website at prenatalyogacenter.com. Hope to work with you soon. Take care. Hi everyone. I'm Deb Blaschenberg and I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're going to talk more on the baby side. We are speaking to Dr. Sonia Gidwani, who full disclosure was the pediatrician for my kids for over five years until we moved to New Jersey. So she has my incredible trust. So I thought I would reach out and we would talk a little bit about what people are looking for in a pediatrician, as well as Dr. Gidwani, who I lovingly call Dr. G, (laughs) hear all about her point of view. So let me tell you guys a little bit about her. Dr. Sonia Gidwani trained in general pediatrics at the Children's Hospital, New Jersey, University of Medicine, and Dentistry of New Jersey. After completing one year of Pediatric Endocrinology Fellowship at the New York Hospital, While Cornell Medical Center, she'd been practicing in Manhattan at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital since 1994. Her expertise in metabolic and endocrine diseases of children, especially diabetes and obesity. She has published work in the field of pediatric endocrinology and is currently involved in three NIH-funded studies in that area. In 1998, she was recognized by New York Magazine, where she was named one of the top doctors in New York. Thank you so much, Dr. G, for coming onto my podcast.
1: Oh, I am honored to be here.
0: Oh, thanks. Yeah, I was so excited to, that when you said you could do this. So let's jump into a little bit about what should new parents expect of their pediatrician?
1: I think the most important thing is that you make a connection with your pediatrician. It has to be somebody who you can reach out to any time of the day and be able to feel comfortable with what opinions they make on your child. And so just meeting them and kind of developing a rapport with them is very, very important. And so I really believe that meeting your pediatrician before you have the baby really breaks the ice and makes things so much easier for you. It gets you very comfortable and you have to develop a trust between your pediatrician and you. That's
0: the, that's the most important key uh, issue. I agree. Now, one thing I remember is that you were so great about answering emails um, pretty much all the time. I remember one time, it was actually even Christmas Eve, something happened with one of them, I think it was Shay, and you got back to me pretty quickly. How common do you think it is that pediatricians do that?
1: It's actually not very common. Um, you know, it's actually not very easy to get people to do emailing in fact. Um, In fact, when I I remember when I first started my practice and I had a couple lawyers who had helped me set the whole thing up would come up to me and say, I don't know why you do this. You're really setting yourself up for liability. And I actually felt that uh, I really connected with my patients and a very important thing to to see in a pediatrician is the accessibility and the availability. Because you like you know, seventy percent of the kids get better on their own. Parents just need reassurance that they're they can watch their kid and that things are gonna get better. And where is it that you know the red flag is up and we need to address this? And that's essentially what parents need to know from a pediatrician. So accessibility and availability is important. And yes, we understand that if it's a real emergency, they would pick up the phone and call or they'll go to the ER. But it's for these small things, which they're not sure whether to or whether not to, is where a small one-liner really helps out. And, you know, in this day and age with technology available, to be able to have a smartphone that can, uh, that can have emails that can be HIPAA compliant and be able to answer them is just an unbelievable uh, uh, access. And you're right that, Not all pediatricians would be willing to spend this much time or be available. But I've realized that I actually don't get that overwhelmed because I can do this on my downtime. Patients are happy if they get a response from me in an hour. And there are times I can do it within minutes because, you know, I'm looking at my phone. But that doesn't mean that I sit through dinner and keep looking at my phone constantly to email.
0: Yeah, I found it. Really reassuring, especially my kids are still pretty young, you know, two and five. And very, it's the first time parent to be able to reach out and you just kind of be like, I think it's fine. Let's just watch. And even sometimes I would take a picture, like if there was a rash or something and you just be like, yep, let's just watch. It saved me from having to schlep down and see you. <laughs> so That's I, right. really, I really appreciated that. Most so, importantly,
1: it treats, treats a parent's anxiety. And I understand. I mean, it can cause anxiety because do you, you don't have any idea about what a rash should look like when it's supposed to be dangerous, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's nice to be able to, to get that opinion, you know? Uh, So yeah, I mean, I, I believe that I should, I should promote as much preventive care as possible and allay people's anxieties in a short period of time.
0: And it probably also frees up your schedule so that you don't have people trekking in, taking up an appointment time for something you'd be like, yep, it's just a rash. right. No, and it's interesting, you
1: know, you you look at it like that and I look at it like that, but in the way uh, the reimbursements are or the way the medical system is set up, most pediatricians would not want to do that because that would uh, be considered as loss of revenue.
0: Oh, well, I think (laughs) it just made life a lot more seamless and not having to disrupt and come in for an appointment you know, I I just appreciate that. So when does a pediatrician first see the baby if the pediatrician does not work in the hospital or birth center the baby was born in?
1: If it's an uncomplicated birth and everything was well, and they were discharged from the hospital and were told that everything is going well, then usually three to five days later is just fine. But if their jaundice level was a little elevated, or if they lost a lot of weight, then it's a good idea to see your pediatrician within 24 to 48 hours.
0: That's from being, dis- the, being released from the hospital birth center? Uh, that's, that's after being released from the, okay. from the
1: hospital. That's right.
0: And then for home births, you want them, I can't remember what we did, probably like the next day? Well, you know, because the
1: midwife is able to see you the next day, Mm -hmm. I usually like to see them between 48 to 72 hours. Seeing them too early sometimes is not that useful, just because the jaundice is not obvious at that point. So the jaundice becomes obvious somewhere between 36 to 48 hours. And by 48 to 72 hours, it peaks. So it's nice to be able to see them at 48 to 72 hours. Plus, it's also the time when the mother's milk is starting to come in. So you can get a sense of which way this child is heading at seeing them at, at less than 36 hours. Sometimes is not that, uh, informative as it is
0: when you see them after 48 hours. Cause then you also get a sense of, I guess, how, uh, not just the milk, but how babies latching. And, um, I know there's a concern about babies losing too much weight. Is that when you're typically seeing that? So most babies
1: lose about, I would say approximately about 10 ounces, you know, uh, in the hospital, between five to eight percent in the hospital, which and most normal births are discharged at 48 hours, while as birthing centers sometimes discharge babies at 24 hours, at which point they haven't really lost so much weight. So by day three, they've kind of reached the bottom of their weight loss. And so that gives you a good sense of how things are going. And also it's the time when the milk starts to come in. So it's a great way to kind of put everything into perspective and put things together and
0: be able to see where you stand. I want to ask a little more about the weight loss. So the more I've been studying about um, how much fluid the mom gets during Uh, labor, if she has an epidural, doesn't the baby end up getting a little extra bloated? And so my concern is if the the mom, say, has an epidural for hours and hours and she's continuously getting an IV to help Mm -hmm. uh, not have a drop of blood pressure, the baby, I thought, gets a little bit bloated. And then if they kind of pee out all that bloat, is that considered part of that 10 ounce or 10% of weight? And does that tend to cause concern?
1: So interestingly, these are
0: parameters set for people who
1: are not necessarily ready to make clinical judgment on patients. Mm -hmm. So 10% is a number that's given out to the nurses or the people at the hospital who are discharging these babies just to identify if this baby needs to be seen quickly or not. The real way to actually assess a child is my rule of thumb, which I use, you know, and I tell all my prenatal patients before they give birth. Day one, you need one wet diaper. Day two, you need two wet diapers. Day three, you need three wet diapers. That is telling you that you have enough fluid to be able to perfuse your kidneys and you won't get into trouble. Um, And so I let parents know that if your child has peed every eight hours, you're doing good. If you haven't peed in 12 hours, you're falling behind. It's time to uh, hydrate your child some other way if you don't have enough milk. So I think from a physician's perspective, that is actually more useful in figuring out if your child's really dehydrated or not. And then the other thing is the pink crystals that you see in the diaper when the child's starting to get dehydrated. So yes, weight is one way of figuring out if the child's getting dehydrated, but it's not the only way. Actually, the more important way is to look at the
0: urine output and the uric acid crystals. That's that's great because I know a lot of people do go by the weight and then they're like, "Uh oh, baby's losing too much weight. We better start supplementing. And that can be really hard on a mom that really was committed to breastfeeding.
1: Absolutely. No, I think we really need to encourage the breastfeeding. And what I also feel that when people mention supplementing, uh, the parents get very anxious about the fact that it might compromise their breastfeeding. And it's very important to reassure that if you use a method where you keep you give enough of a supplement just to get by so that you get enough of a urine output, but not enough to compromise the breastfeeding. And the best way I tend to do it, and that's just my style, people do it differently, is every other feed I offer the supplement after the baby's been nursed. And so that way you get enough to not get into trouble with dehydration, but you still maintain the urge to breastfeed and so it doesn't compromise the breastfeeding.
0: That's great. So how do you, gosh, the beginning of both kids is kind of a phase, like a little bit of a haze, but how do you as a pediatrician support or help facilitate breastfeeding if the mom's having any sort of problem? Do you just recommend them out or do you try to help with latch or anything? So yes.
1: I mean, if I do see them in the hospital, I try to watch the latch even while they're in the hospital. But if I have not seen them in the hospital, I usually tell parents when they come for the first visit, if it's possible try not to nurse right before coming so I can watch you nursing while I uh, check the baby for the first time. That usually will give me a good sense of where they stand. You know, if the baby latches well, the mom has good enough amount of milk, and that will usually do the trick um, and be able to give her some sense of how to do it. If there's a problem with the latch, I might give her a few tips on how to do it. If I feel there's a short, uh, there's a tongue tie, That's something that I will identify and say, okay, uh, this may be the problem and we may need to refer you out. If it's more than that and there's a problem with just latching on or things that I don't think I can control or I can't explain, then I will refer them out to a lactation consultant who can either make a home visit or they can go to a lactation clinic to get
0: further help. How do you think that's common practice for most pediatricians to get as involved as you do? Um, I'm not necessarily sure. I mean, I don't want to speak
1: about other people. There are people who very passionately feel about this. So I know a lot of pediatricians who do provide that support. But you're right, not everybody provides that support, depending on how busy their practice is and how much time they may have. You know, I like to spend about 20 to 25 minutes with a newborn. And to me, watching that mother breastfeed is more important Uh, because doing the physical exam and weighing and measuring the baby will probably take me five minutes. But to be able to watch them breastfeed makes, you know, makes it much easier for me to figure out what's going
0: on. Uh, Yeah. You always spend a lot of time with us. I always appreciated that. So how often should parents expect to see a pediatrician in the first year?
1: Uh, So there is a schedule that we follow, uh, you know, which is recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, which includes um, vaccinations, growth and developmental checks, and superiority guidance. And usually uh, once I've seen them for the first visit, I'll see them 10 days later to assess if the breastfeeding is going well. If there's a problem, you do another follow-up visit. Otherwise, we go straight to the one-month visit. And then they're seen at two months, four months, six months, nine months, 12 months, 15 months, 18 months two years, three years, four years. That's yes. the schedule we follow.
0: It, there's a lot. I think we spread it out a little because we spread out our vaccinations, which we can talk to in a little bit. Um, right. But I think we saw you a little more because of that. That's, right. That's uh, right. Are there any questions or concerns you hear from new parents that you think they just, you know, you can help them just not stress, be like, I hear you, but really not a big deal.
1: Right, so, you know, crying baby. It is, it's very anxiety causing for a parent. And so the most important thing we have to tell parents is that crying is normal. That's the only way a child knows how to communicate. You know, you check their diaper, make sure that's okay, make sure that they're not hungry. And if all that is satisfied, then all they need is some tender, loving care, which means hug them, rock them. And, you know, from the age old ways, we all know that rocking motion is very, very soothing on the babies. You know, there are lots of other things that we can discuss on on soothing babies, but I think that's the key. The other thing that I think I do tell parents that's very important, monitor the urine output, don't worry about the pooping, don't have to keep long diaries uh, because it becomes more of a chore. I think the philosophy that I like to use is, do the best, leave the rest, enjoy your child, let your pediatrician do the worrying, and we'll tell you when when you're in trouble. Otherwise, it's very important to stay positive because if you get negative, it affects your breast, uh, breast milk supply, anxiety, pain, and stress, all three will decrease your milk supply, and you have all three of them. So it's very important to take a deep breath, use all the help you have, and do the best with the breastfeeding and just focus on that. Everything else will kind of fall into place. Rashes are not something you worry about in babies. Don't worry about the jaundice. It's the doctor's responsibility. They'll make sure that the baby's okay. You just watch the urine output and work on the latch, and that should be your focus.
0: I like that. Well, are there any areas that you think parents maybe don't put enough thought into? Do you think it's the urine? They don't think about enough wet diapers
1: I think what they do is they get into the uh, they get into too much of detail into small, small uh, all details about how many peas, how many poops how did the kid react to this uh, how many times they fed how long they fed honestly what really matters is how much milk they got in and if they have enough urine output and that's all that matters it doesn't matter how long the baby stayed on the breast some babies will stay on the breast five minutes and some will say twenty minutes depends how much they get in and I think. That's the key. We shouldn't give them all these pages and pages to fill out and keep track of. What's really important to keep track of is, has the baby latching on? How long is baby staying on the breast to be able to get enough to be able to get you three wet diapers a day?
0: What about the sleeping part? I mean, because I feel like do you wake a sleeping baby to try to get the three wet diapers or just let the baby keep sleeping what's your thought on on that So I
1: think that if your child is starting to get dehydrated where you haven't had a wet diaper for twelve hours, yes, it's important to wake up that baby and try to feed them and get them going. But if your baby's giving you three wet diapers a day, then I would let them sleep now. The other thing that I like to do, which you know, is just my way of doing things is try to let them sleep a little longer at nighttime and during the day tend to sleep them only two to three hours. So, yes, if they're taking their long naps during the day, then it's time to change that cycle around. You know, I like for them to be able to take that sleep at night rather than during the day. As does the so, mother.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: we all we all need the sleep. You know, you feel like a zombie after you have a baby. So it's important to yes, once you know that the baby's starting to gain weight and the milk supply is good, um, then try to work on changing the sleep cycle a little bit. So yes, in that adjustment phase, you sometimes do wake up a sleeping baby because you don't want them to do catch up with all their sleep during the day. But initially, as long as you can get three wet diapers a day, I really don't have a problem with how long the baby sleeps, as long as they're breathing okay and their color is good.
0: And I know this wasn't one of the questions I talked about earlier, but or I sent to you, but what are your thoughts about baby? For a while, it was, you know, it's still like um, baby on the back. And when I was growing up, my mom's like, oh, we always put you on your stomach. Do you have thoughts on that? Because I've had some moms who are like, the baby just sleeps better on the stomach. My pediatrician told me not to do it, but the baby just sleeps better. Yes. So it's, it's a very
1: controversial topic. You're right. When I started practice, we were putting all the babies on their bellies. And so there was a SIDS study that was conducted, and it's evidence-based medicine. You know, honestly, I don't think we understand why that happens. We're just theorizing that babies who sleep on their bellies maybe muffle themselves because they can't breathe. I think the, the huge drop in the rate of SIDS to the extent of 50% was a huge statistic that you just cannot ignore. Mm-hmm. You know, you do realize that that's a statistic that's unbelievable. You're like, really? Am I going to take the chance of my kid having potential SIDS? So I think it's very important to respect that study. However, it's not always practical. You're right. There are babies who sleep better on their bellies, and there are babies who are very fussy, and the only way they'll sleep is on their bellies. It may be okay, but it'll cause a lot of anxiety for the parent because they're going to keep saying to themselves, "God, I'm going to watch my baby sleep." So I think in the first four months, until a child learns to flip over on their own, it's kind of important to keep them on their backs. You know, scientific knowledge is something that grows with time. And you're right. Fifty years down the road, we may be wrong. But I think with all the evidence that's available to us right now, it is important to kind of put them on their backs once they pass the four-month mark and they learn to roll over on their own, and if they decide in the middle of the night to roll over and fall sleep on their bellies, one is they're clearing their airway anyway, which is what we thought may be one of the issues. If there are other causes of SIDS, we may not even know, and that may not matter in depending on what position the baby is in. Uh, After four months, if the baby prefers to sleep on the belly, I do let them sleep on the belly. But for the first four months, I really try to keep them on their backs as much as possible.
0: No, I like that. I mean, personally, I always go for evidence-based research. That's how I base pretty much everything we do. And I'm glad that you're able to explain that. I do remember several times waking up and one of my kids would break out of the swaddle and would be on their belly. And I'd be like, oh no, let's turn you back over. And then they would flip themselves back. So, but that didn't happen until about four or five months, but thank you for explaining that. Cause I think that is something, especially at this age, you know, people that are like 30, 40 ish hearing parents say, Oh, but I used to put, you know, like grandparents say, I used to put you on your belly. And as, as you mentioned, things change, you know, what Thanks. things were done for me as a child, we're not necessarily doing for my kids.
1: Yeah, I know know, often this is another thing that comes up when you're bringing up your child. A lot of grandparents get involved and people are like, oh my God, my mother said this and my mother-in-law said this. I think it's very important to understand that we have to respect what they have to say. They raised us and they did a great job. You know, we're all raised in 95 million different ways. 95% of us come out okay. So I think that a lot of it, nature takes care of it. Uh, The nurture is very important. And you have to respect what our parents did for us. And we just have to tell them, I respect your opinion. I think that's a great suggestion. I'm trying it this way for now, and if it doesn't work, I will definitely take your suggestion. I don't think it's. Imp- I think it's important to understand that. Don't disrespect them because they're the ones who are going to raise, uh, help you raise these grandkids. Because you cannot get a baby better babysitter than <laughs> your parent. It's absolutely unbelievable, and I think grandparents enjoy grandkids more than they enjoy their own children, and that's <laughs> a cycle of life that we have to respect.
0: I, I completely agree with you on that. Yeah. So I want to touch back to the crying babies because I work with babies and I see many cry. I notice it certainly doesn't bother me having a crying baby in the classroom as much as it bothers the mom. And I think that's part of fatigue and maybe like, oh, I don't, you know, my baby's crying. I don't want baby disturb anyone else. But so what's your advice for how to handle a crying baby? So, I think the crying baby that dis- distresses uh, moms is usually
1: in the first two or three months of life, and there are different reasons why babies cry. But I think initially a crying baby cries because they do nothing else. You know, they don't really start smiling till two months of age. There are a couple other reasons why babies could be crying in the first two uh, first couple months of life. But the important thing is once a baby starts crying, like I said, make sure the baby's not hungry. Maybe the, maybe the diaper doesn't need to be changed. Maybe the baby's not hurt in any fashion. And if all go, looks okay, then you just rock the baby and hopefully calm them down. There are a couple other reasons why babies cry a lot in the first couple months. Is One is reflux and one is colic. And both those things are actually a function of bowel immaturity. You know, one is in the upper gut and one is in the lower gut. And there are different ways to manage them. But the important thing is burp your baby in between the feeding, burp after you feed the baby. You can leave the baby sitting upright a little bit for about a half hour, 45 minutes after you feed the baby to get all the air out that may have been swallowed or produced by digestion of the milk. Colic is something that we can't explain, and that's a name given to a crying baby. For reasons we don't understand, my gut feeling is that, you know, their lower gut is not mature enough. And when the peristalsis of the gut moves, it kind of gets stuck midway, and that's when the babies get very uncomfortable. If, if air passes through that spasm, that spasm gets uh, even worse, and those babies really cry a lot. Now, some colic can be addressed with just decreasing the air going through the, uh, going through the intestines. However, some of it cannot be uh, changed uh, because colicky babies are colicky, and over a four-month period, uh, it will resolve by itself. If for some reason you feel that there is something dietary in the mother's um, diet that may be contributing to it, you can address it. It's rare, but um, if the mother feels that there's a pattern that's doing it, then it may not be a bad idea to go off certain foods that could be doing it. And the commonest ones are dairy, some cruciferous vegetables, uh, sometimes nuts and wheat. Uh, But I also do not like to restrict a mother's diet significantly because it's important for her to eat well to be able to uh, continue to lactate adequately.
0: No, I'm glad to hear you say that because I feel like I do see a lot of mothers coming in and they're like, I don't have anything to eat because I've taken everything away because it's making my baby gassy. So you think that's actually rare? It's from the mom's diet. It's not
1: not very common, honestly. You know, a lot of it is immaturity of the bowel, and you have to. Uh, reassure them that this is going to pass. Now, of course, there are other symptoms that show up. You know, you end up seeing a green stool, a bloody stool. Then you know that the baby is sensitive to something in, in mom's diet. But for the most part, I think that 80 to 90 percent of the times, this is bowel maturity and we just have to learn to write it out. Some babies are more colicky than the others. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the, and in those cases, you can try some uh, food elimination diet kind of thing. But I think that mild amount of 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 crying uh, should be treated with rocking the baby and spending some time with the baby to calm them down. So
0: how would you identify the difference between a colicky baby or one that's just a little fussy?
1: Well, most of these babies, when they come to the office, you can tell, you know. And a lot of it can also be if a mother is very anxious, then it reflects on the baby too. Those babies tend to cry a lot too. So I think it's important to uh, emphasize that spend time with your baby, uh, hold them every so often, interact with them constantly, try to put them down, but do try to spend time with them. Do not expect that a child's going to be sleeping two hours feeding and going back to sleep uh, two hours they're a full-time job and you just have to kind of work with them and entertain them. However, the babies that tend to come to the office and cry a lot, the moment you put them down and you just cannot put them down and they have a very hard time latching. Then you kind of get a sense that these are babies that are going to be hard to deal with. And then you uh, come up with other strategies to deal, uh, to work with it. You can try things like gripe water or colic calm or um, using a rocker In the suburbs, uh, people tend to take their babies out for a ride uh, when the babies get colicky. Uh, Some people, um, some of my patients have told me they put the baby in the car seat and uh, put them
0: on top of the washing machine to kind of get them the vibration motion. My mom said, because my brother is colicky, and this is 46 years ago, I don't think she's gotten over it, but she said she used to drive all around Massachusetts. It was the only time that he would sleep. And the women that I see that do have true colicky babies, like those that you just can't put down, I see Mm it just a level of exhaustion in them that you just don't see. And my heart goes out to them because I mean, motherhood's hard, but that baby that is just screeching all the time, it just takes, it really takes it. it, takes like their heart away. Yeah. It takes a
1: toll on you emotionally You know, you're an emotional wreck to begin with after that it becomes. So you can see it on the mother's face if they're really colicky. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so just try to get the baby calm. I like the idea of putting the baby on the washer or dryer and then, you know, I guess there's swings, but it's just, it's so hard. I always try to help those moms just remind them, like, try to find a babysitter. Just get out of the house by yourself for a few moments. Yes. So I want to switch a little bit to the idea of talking about alternative healing modalities and how pediatricians support that. So, for example, like acupuncture or chiropr- chiropractic or holistic medicine. So what would you say to a family that wants to incorporate that into the raising of their child? And do you, do you think most pediatricians support that?
1: um I would say half and half. Yes, a lot of pediatricians do support that. We all believe whatever works. Um, however, there are some people who are like, you know what, I have no information about this and I'm not going to be able to help you with this. But I think a lot of us ex- uh, accept the fact that, you know, there is more than what we can offer and whatever works. If it helps, why not? I mean, in babies, you really don't use so much acupuncture, but more right. acupressure, a mm-hmm. pressure pressure that you can press, that'll, that'll decrease the pain and things like that. So it really helps out in that fashion. Um, I, I'm o- uh, i even open to chiropractor uh, stuff and some of my patients have used it and have benefited a lot from that kind of thing. Uh, from medication point of view, giving uh, herbs, I tell them to run it by me. Some of them I do have information on, some of them I don't know. And then I tell them really, you know, honestly, I don't know enough about this, so I'm not sure. Care about giving anything to babies for for all practical purposes, you know. So the things I know that I know are benign. I'm happy to say yes to things that I don't know. I'm a little uncomfortable, you know. I just really believe, like I said, 70% of the kids get better on their own. The less you the less you intervene, the better it is. Like people have a huge tendency to do probiotics these days. They feel like you need to do them prophylactically. I'm just not sure it's there's enough evidence to to, to support that. Um, We are all raised without probiotics and we all did okay. And, you know, there are situations where yes, probiotics help, you know, and preemie babies or when babies get sick and, you know, they have diarrhea and things like that. So yes, there is a place for everything. Um, But to do it prophylactically, I'm not sure, maybe therapeutically, I'm willing to accept it.
0: Yeah, my. And for, we have acidophilus in the house, and unfortunately, my kids think it's like candy. Which shows <laughs> that I probably should maybe actually give them a little candy so they would cut off the probiotics. <laughs> do you think that's causing them harm? Having a little, um, you know, these little pink probiotics. Month?
1: No, I don't think it, it causes harm. On the other hand, you know, if they're fine, otherwise, do they really need it? I don't know. I don't think we have enough evidence to go either ways. So. Uh, let's not overdo it let's put it this way yeah if you want to give it once a day it's fine but if they're doing well without it you know
0: that's you really, their little sweet treat so yeah. maybe i got to yeah. find an alternative to that so what are your thoughts on antibiotics and when to use them
1: okay so antibiotics a uh, huge problem uh, not just from children point of view but just as a community we all know that, you know, we're developing more and more resistance and we need to really use them more judiciously. Also giving too many antibiotics to children can affect uh, the, the bacterial uh, milieu of your gut. And so you want to avoid interfering as much as possible. However, there are situations where you don't have a choice and you have to give antibiotics. So what I like to do is I do tell my parents that there, there is situations where I I strongly clinically feel that this child needs antibiotics. And then there are times I'll say, you know what, I'm going to leave this up to you. If you really want to use it, go ahead and use it. Or sometimes I will say, I'll go ahead and send the prescription. I think I would hold off for 48 hours. If your child is better, try not to use it. If your child worsens, then at least you have it on board so that, you know, in the middle of the night, when are panicking, like how are we going to get the antibiotic? So I think that there are levels of when and how to use the antibiotics. And then, yes, when I do put them on antibiotics, I do give them probiotics or I make sure that they eat yogurt so that, you know, the the gut um, flora is not destroyed completely.
0: Yeah, I feel like what's been interesting is my kids have gotten a few ear infections, and sometimes it's a wait and see where I feel mm-hmm. like, again, going back to when I was growing up, because my, my mom's always going, you know, saying, oh, well, baby should go right on antibiotics. But so it seems like ear infections is definitely one of those things that it's, we're gonna see how it goes on its own. Am I correct right. about that? That is correct,
1: that is correct. Because some ear infections can be, like 50, 60% of your infections can be viral. In fact, if you look at the European protocol, they actually don't see those children for 48 hours if they're two years and above. They like to see them only at 48 hours to be able to tell if they're getting better or getting worse. You know, if at 48 hours they really have a red ear, it's worth treating it. But if uh, at 24 hours you got a red ear, it's, it's worthwhile waiting for a day and seeing if you get better on it or
0: you know? Right. Yeah. I think we use too many antibiotics. I'm glad to hear that. What are your thoughts on immunizations and the possibility of spacing them out?
1: Okay. So there are vaccines, you know, that are on the schedule, mm-hmm. which, um, which are highly recommended. However, there are a few that are not so essential right at the outset, you know, So yes, there are lots of parents who are very anxious about the fact that we're doing an antigen overload. Now, there are some vaccines that the combinations have proven to be actually better than doing them singly. And that's why DPT is something that's always been combined. DTaP is given together because given together, they actually provide better immunity than if you were to do DT and AP separately. So I think from that perspective, certain vaccine combinations are a very good idea. However, um, vaccines like hepatitis B, Uh, which is a sexually transmitted disease. And the only way you'd get it is from your mother or if you got an infected blood transfusion, which never happens, not essential to do it right at the outset. As long as it's done before a child enters kindergarten, it's fine. So when parents ask me about spacing vaccines, I'm happy to do the spacing as long as they're willing to do most of the vaccines. I think my problem comes is when they start to say, I don't want these vaccines. I don't know when I'm going to do them. I don't want that vaccine. That worries me, because i I think there's enough data to prove that vaccines are highly protective. Yes, everything has a cost benefit ratio, and clearly the cost benefit ratio in vaccines is very high in, the, in in the sense that we we've seen huge strides. I mean, just the quality of life or the or the infection control that we've seen in fifty years, which has been phenomenal. Um, so I don't think it's right to blame vaccines for anything and everything that goes wrong around there, just because a lot of things are discovered in the first couple of years. And a lot of vaccines are given in the first couple of years. And so yes, coincidentally, there could be issues, but um, if you prefer to space them out, I'm happy to do a space out schedule because it does decrease the anxiety on the parent. And we don't know if vaccines precipitate certain things that people may be predisposed to. I don't think we have evidence to say that they're causative, but they could be the precipitating events in certain situations. And so if you uh, want to space them out, I'm happy to space them out as long as you have a reasonable schedule where you cover your child for meningitis and the, and the dangerous diseases which are lethal if a child contracts them.
0: June, is there a certain vaccine that people are really hesitant towards? I mean, I think hepatitis B is something that people are very hesitant towards.
1: It's like, why do we need it? I agree. Why do we need it right away? However, there are reasons why hepatitis B should be done. One is it's highly infectious disease. If you get a bruise, I mean, in the olden days, people got hepatitis B from handling lab, lab techs, used to get it from handling blood, people who, blood of people who were hepatitis B positive. It's about 10 times more infectious than HIV. Let's put it that way. So... You know, if you have children who have hepatitis B and these kids play together and one gets bruised and the other one gets bruised, it can get transmitted like that. So before your child goes to kindergarten, you should immunize your child for hepatitis B. However, do you need to do it at birth? Do you need to do it at, in the first year of life? Not essential. Also, if hepatitis B is given before below five years of age, the immune response is much better. If you try to give hepatitis B to adolescents, the immune response is poorer. So it's a window of opportunity to take, but clearly it can be given when we're not doing other vaccines. It doesn't have to be done simultaneously.
0: I know for me, for both my kids to get them into school, they Mm -hmm. needed to have all their shots. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure that most of New York places, you can't get them into school. So are you finding parents trying to find ways around that or fighting that? People are trying to, but I have to say, you know, when I started practice about 20 years ago, nobody used to
1: question vaccines. Then, about 15 years ago, we came through a wave that everybody was questioning and postponing vaccines. In the last five years, I've actually seen a totally different trend, which I'm very, very happy about. People actually at the prenatal interviews come and ask me if I really have a lot of patients who refuse or turn away or or not do vaccines because they're actually worried that their child's going to
0: be there. Of course. (laughs) You know,
1: yeah. sitting in the same waiting room. So a lot of people are now pro-vaccines. They understand vaccines are very important. If they feel like there's an overlord and they, they ask me if they can space it out, I'm totally happy to space it out. I feel that if that is something that's going to make these people get the vaccines, it's worth my while to space them. I don't have scientific evidence to, to say that, yes, it makes a difference in
0: immunity. I don't know the answer mm-hmm. to that only time will tell. Yeah, I agree. I just, I can't imagine the fight someone has to go through to Get their child into a public school um, mm-hmm. without all the shots because I remember one shot we happened to miss for Shay that I don't know how the school mm-hmm. <laughs> picked up on. It. I had to like bring him right down that afternoon before they let him in. So I, yes. it's a real, it's a battle—not um, the one I choose yeah. to fight, but it is a battle for those that want to to take that route. But I mean,
1: I think from the school's perspective, it's only right that if all the other children uh, have had their vaccines that they should be protected and shouldn't get into trouble because somebody else decides not to do the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So it's fair to the other children too. So if you, you know, if you feel like you want to live in a community, you don't do vaccine just for yourself. You do it for the whole community.
0: Mm -hmm. No, I I understand that. Um, I want to talk about milestones. So how much importance do you place on milestones? And if you see a baby not hitting each one, is it more of a wait and see or immediate Action, or what exactly would that action even look like? So, milestones have a
1: range, you know. Uh, so, I I wait for it to uh, go to the outer range, uh, the most outside range, and then I start to get a little concerned. The other thing that I find which, which is more important is when they have delay in more than one uh, area. You know, if they have just a little risk of speech delay, I'm willing to wait. If they just have a little bit of gross motor delay, I'm willing to wait. But if they have a combination where they have speech delay as well as gross motor delay, that starts to concern me. And that's something that I would definitely address. But if you have a delay in one area, it's easy to fix. And sometimes waiting and watching is not such a bad thing. You know, you make the parents aware, you tell them to start working on the child at home. And a lot of times those kids will get better. And you'll probably sometimes even find family history of that. And that's okay to wait and watch. But You know, you also have to give the parents an outer limit and say, you know what, if by this stage this doesn't happen, then we definitely have to make a referral. However, if you have more than one area of delay, then I think it's worth uh, addressing it because there could be other reasons why this is happening. And so you need to get to the bottom of it.
0: So would they be doing OT or PT or speech therapy or kind of
1: all the above? Depending on what the issue is. Yes, they would need either or or all of them.
0: Okay, I just remember um, again, this came from a lot from my mother and my mother in law. You know, like, are they speaking? Were they writing? You know, it was a lot of milestones. And I just wonder how heavily we should put uh, importance on that. So uh, I think that there are some basic
1: uh, milestones that we all ask at all the appointments. Um, There actually now, there's also emphasis on filling out certain forms, you know, the ASQs or the M-chats to give it to the parents so they become aware of what are the things that we are looking for at what stages. So because sometimes there are very soft signs which are not necessarily easy to pick up by a pediatrician who spends about 15, 20 minutes taking care of your child. So a lot of it has to come from the parent. You know, the parent has to be observant. So it's important to know what the milestones are, what you're looking for, uh sometimes, yes, it can cause anxiety, but it's important to address it to your pediatrician and then figure out what is the outer limit and at what point does it require a referral.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually remember getting concerned about Shay and ended up having him do some OT and it really helped. Yes. And I'm really glad that I did that. So I want to uh, start to tie things up with what are some questions you think expectant parents should ask potential pediatricians? i think the uh,
1: important thing is just to uh, first strike up a conversation uh, about uh, what the practice does how they uh, how they resp- uh, you know how they communicate with their patients uh, talk about the schedule talk about how to prepare for a new baby. Most of the times when I do a prenatal consult, I ask the parents whether they would like to address their questions first or should I go ahead and tell them what a new parent should get prepared with. Um, And it's nice to be able to, and you know, a lot of my patients after they leave the prenatal consult, leave and say, wow, that was very informative and I I really appreciate you giving us that information. Uh, And I feel like when I give that information, it really allays that anxiety once the baby comes along, because I really prepare them to be able to handle a baby coming along. And like I told you, my mantra is do the best, leave the rest, (laughs) get the glass half full, don't look at it half empty, enjoy your baby. Those moments never come back. Let your baby do the, let let your pediatrician worry about the difficult parts and keep you, uh, you know, keep guiding you through the whole process. And I think that's, that's very, very important. Or uh, some people have very specific questions. uh, And I think it's very important to ask those questions. You know, there are diseases in the family or there are complications in the family to deal with or there are illnesses in the family to deal with or there are personalities in the family to deal with. And those are things that you should address early on. Um, Get the schedule of visits from the pediatrician so you have some sense of how to organize that, their timings, when you'll be able to go in, or what are their expectations about how to uh, communicate with them on a regular basis and on an urgent basis as necessary? So I think more than getting all the information which is probably out there on the internet, it's very important to have that conversation where you feel like you can connect with your pediatrician, and that's the key.
0: To you know if mo- I know that you do the prenatal meetings, do you think all pediatricians do that? There
1: are some people who absolutely don't do them. There are people who do a collective uh, a meeting where they uh, where they have like one evening every three weeks or something, and they meet with a whole bunch of people together, um, which is also a pretty good. Uh, I do want to let people know that um, pediatricians should take the initiative to meet with the parents. It makes life easier for the parents and the and the uh, physician. of the times uh, insurance companies will reimburse you for that visit. So you should feel confident that, you know, the the physician doesn't feel like they're not getting reimbursed for that kind of time. And uh, it really sets the stage for a very comfortable few months subsequently. Uh, And and that's where you really get a sense of um, the family. You develop a relationship where you know which parent panics more than the other, and who's a parent that will reach out to you when there's actually real trouble, you know? And that's very important from my perspective. It's very important for me to know that this is a parent who's not an alarmist. So if this parent is getting worried, there's something wrong with this
0: child. <laughs> I just laugh <laughs> that at that. Very I know? just laugh at that, knowing that you were our pediatrician for years. And so I'm thinking, okay, you probably get the email from me and you're like, oh, it's Deb. And then if you're like, oh, there's an email from Joey, I better take this seriously. <laughs>
1: no, but I will tell you, you were not one of my frequent flyers. So, you know, um there are times that, um uh, you know, and we know all of those and that's okay. And sometimes I worry that, you know, uh, that parents who are frequent flyers or who write to me a lot, I don't want to ignore that one time that they really actually need to reach out to me. You know what I mean? So I'm happy. And I think that email has done wonders to teaching parents clinical judgment because they don't hesitate to write an email, but they hesitate to make that phone call because they feel like they interfere with your life. But when they send that email, even if it's a one-liner, that's how you learn clinical judgment. You learn what to look for, learn what not to worry about, you know? And you only learn that on the job. I could sit there and give you a uh, um, 24-hour, 40-minute lecture. 24 hours later, you've forgotten everything. (laughs) But what you learn on the job, you will never forget. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think email contact is so useful because, you know, you, you learn, you know what, this is what I did last time. And you even have it written down. So you can always refer back to it. That's why i love email i think technology has done wonders to be able to communicate with your pediatrician
0: yeah and you truly were amazing to have and it was one of the saddest things about leaving the city is that (laughs) we did not have you as our pediatrician anymore although the kids still talk about you dr g (laughs) so i'm gonna tie things up will you tell people where they can find you if they are in new york You are at Our Kids MD and you have two locations? Yes. So we are at 135 West 70th
1: Street, which is just off Broadway. And then the other location is 59 West 12th Street, which is between 5th and 6th, uh, right uh, uh, below Union Square.
0: So for my New York mamas out there seek Dr. G out, Zoni Gidwani. She's really amazing, as you've heard. And I'm picky and I trusted her and I still do. I'm actually surprised I haven't emailed you about issues or even though we don't see you on a regular basis anymore. (laughs) Well, I thank you so much for your time. I know you're so busy and I really appreciate that you carved some time out to talk to me and to my community.
1: It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. It's so lovely
0: to see you again. Good to see you. right? Have a great night. Take care. Bye.